If you want to open to Titus, we're going to um, kind of give a review from last week. We just talked about an overview of Titus, the book, and we read the whole thing. And we just talked about the general outline, which is that God and the gospel uh, are the foundation of what Paul's trying to say here. And he goes over that here at the beginning, and then throughout the chapters he keeps bringing that up as the reason and the ground for everything he's going to say. And the specifically he talks about chapter 1, the church, and how that affects uh, our relationship in terms of what the church ought to be and should look like. In chapter 2, he talks about more about individuals and our life outside the church and in the church, but individual character and things like that, um, roles for different people, uh, older, younger, husbands, wives, things like that. And then in chapter 3, uh, he focuses a lot on relationships outside the church, so government, and then also relationships with unbelievers and how that should look, and then all that is grounded in who God is and what the gospel is. But today, we're just going to cover the first four verses here, actually for the next two weeks, cover the first four verses, um, and then hopefully try and get through chapter two next month, and then David's going to share a message at the end of next month on on chapter two. So that's kind of where we're going so far. Uh, But let's read here. Titus 1, verses 1 to 4. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Savior. So today, the one thing that I really want to talk about today is what Paul says, how Paul is viewing himself and how that applies to us as God's servant or slave. And we've actually talked about this before, but You know, as we just preach through books of the Bible, things come up, and the things that come up most often, we cover most often, and the things that come up less often, we cover less often. And this happens to be uh, very often that Paul calling himself a servant comes up. Uh, The most repeated verse that's word for word in the New Testament isn't this verse, but it's another verse where Paul calls himself a servant of Jesus Christ. Um, This one is actually unique because he says a servant of God. Usually he says a servant of Jesus or a slave of Jesus, same word there. And I just thought I would point that out here. Your Bible may have a note right next to servant in verse 1, Paul, a servant of God, or it might have a little note that says, or slave. And you actually have a verse later on in Titus where the same word is used and they translate it slave when it says, when we were lost, we were slaves to various lusts and pleasures. That's in chapter Three, that's the same word there, um, slave, as is right here in verse one. So Paul is a servant. So let's let's talk about first just Paul, how he's a ser- he views himself as a servant. What does that mean in general? Then talk about it specifically here in the context of Titus. 
what is he meaning specifically here, just in uniquely in verses 1 to 4, and then how does that apply to us? That's kind of where we're going. So first, Paul in general. I have a thought, and this isn't um, 100% how it has to be, but this is a thought, and I want to submit it to you for consideration, about why Paul uh, brings this up so often, how that he's a servant or a slave of Jesus. So why don't you turn with me and notice something here in Acts where Paul describes his conversion. If you turn with me to Acts 26, Acts chapter 26, this is where Paul is talking about his conversion. And you remember, pretty dramatic, right? He's on his way to actually persecute Christians, and he sees a vision of Jesus, and he's converted. It's a very dramatic conversion. And if Jesus appears to you and talks to you, um, you're going to remember what he says. And he says something interesting here that I think relates. So let's read in Acts 26, Paul's account of his conversion. And there's one thing I want to point out. Let's start in verse 12. Chapter 26, verse 12. In this connection, his um, desire to persecute Christians, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So Saul was called, Paul was called Saul before he was cha- changed his name to Paul. God changed his name. Verse 15, And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things which you have seen, me and uh, to the things in which you have seen me, and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes, that they may turn from darkness to light, And from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So let's stop right there. So the thing I want you to notice is one of the things Jesus specifically says to Paul when he appears to him dramatically at his conversion is that he's going to make him a servant. A servant. And no wonder Paul brings this up over and over if... God appears to you, and one of the first things you ever hear, and you know, this is, this is God, this is the Lord, um, this is Christ right here to me, and he says, I have a specific task, I want to make you a servant. That's something we take, you would take seriously, of course. And so Paul, calling himself over and over at the beginning of these letters a servant, may very well, he may very well be thinking every time he writes that, that I heard that directly from Christ when he appeared to me. And surely he he remembers that for sure. Um, No question that that was the biggest moment in his life, Um, was his conversion there, meeting God himself, going one direction and at a moment being turned totally around, the opposite direction, to on his way to persecute and and even arrest and um, even have killed some Christians and then to meet Christ, to hear him call him, and then to be going the other direction, to be proclaiming, the one whom he was persecuting. So quite a striking 
entrance into becoming a servant of God there. And so I think that's in the background here as Paul over and over calls himself a servant or a slave. But what does it mean for Paul and then us, by extension, to be servants of God, servants of Christ? There's a lot of things here. I'm going to throw quite a few out, and maybe you'll just remember one or two that could encourage you, but I'm going to say quite a few here. Um, What does it mean to be a servant of God? What is involved with that? Well, first, a slave or a servant belongs to another, right? And Paul here and we, as if we're servants of God, belong to another. Think about the, there's a couple of verses here. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. We're not our own anymore. We've been bought with a price. And later on here in Titus, it says that we were slaves to various lusts and pleasures. This is chapter 3. Passing our days in malice and envy, hated, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God appeared, God our Savior appeared, he saved us. So everyone's a servant. Everyone's a slave of something. Either sin or um, just living for ourselves, the passions of the flesh, or God. And we're all slaves of one thing or another. Are we a servant of God, a slave of God, or a slave to something else? But we're all a slave. And we don't belong to ourselves. If we have become a Christian, we've been bought with a price. Jesus died and shed his blood for us so that we belong to him. And that's one of the things coming out here I think Paul is thinking about in general is that we belong to God. There's a story that Spurgeon told. It's kind of interesting. You know, you hear Spurgeon. You guys, I think most of you are familiar with Spurgeon. I've read something by Spurgeon, pastor in England. And it's interesting to read. And every once in a while, a reference will come up. And you'll and it reminds you what time he was preaching, like Civil War. Uh, and I think a little before that, if I have my years right. But he, in one of his um, sermons, talks about a real account that he read of a slave here in the U.S., and the a master was about to severely hurt, or maybe worse, a slave out in public. The slave did something, um, and he pulled out a sword. The, the master pulled out a sword and was about to, and even swinging towards the slave, and someone stepped in, someone else. And, and the master of the slave actually cut that person, um, and that's how they stopped. They actually physically stopped the blade. And as their blood is dripping off that person that stepped in, they said to the master, I have just purchased this slave with my blood. And um, it's really a good picture of what Christ did for us. Um, To a lesser extent, I mean, the reality is, and I've said this, I've shared that story before, but um, the reality is that blood that was shed to free that slave, um, that person, who saved the slave's life, not only, but then set them free later. Um, That was sinner's blood that was shed, right? That one day that person was going to die anyways. But Jesus didn't have to die for you and me. He didn't have to have blood at all. He didn't have to become a man. And when he became a man, he didn't have to die. He could have lived forever because he was the one person that's perfect, that didn't deserve to die. And that's the person that stepped in and shed his blood for you and for me. And that's why we no longer belong to ourselves. We're a, sl- we're a slave. 
you know, you might imagine yourself in that situation. What would that slave feel like? How would that slave feel towards that person that put their own life in danger to free them, to protect them, and that it costs them dearly? They would, how would they feel? Um, how, and how much more us to Christ? Um, because not only did he shed his blood, he didn't have to sh- shed his blood, but he did. And not only blood, but his, whole, his life. Um, his, he died for us. Praise the Lord. And we can be thankful. But one, the first, that's just the first thing, that a slave means Paul does not belong to himself. He views himself as belonging to another. What else can we say about just being a slave of God for us and for Paul? A slave or a servant does the will of another. So the slave or the servant doesn't decide, I am going to decide whatever I feel like I'm going to do today um, and this week and this year. The servant does the will of another. And so is looking to the master to guide them, to, sh- to show them what would you have me to be doing. And that's the same for Paul and for us, that if we're slaves of God, servants of God, we want to do the will of another. We want to do God's will. You know, it makes me think of the verse where Jesus one thing I want to point out here is the connection between the word Lord and the word servant, you know, uh, or the word master and the Lord servant. Because if you're a servant, then there has to be a Lord or a master, someone you're looking to, uh, that you belong to, that you're doing that person's will that's not your own. And we, Jesus is our Lord. If, if we're really saved by him, it's not only that he saves us from our sins, but he's our Lord, that he tells us what to do and we submit as best we can. We don't do it perfectly, but we want to obey and follow him. And Jesus says uh, in the Gospels, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Remember that? And so the reality is there's a connection here, not only to that he saves us and he bought us and he purchases us, but we're wanting to do his will. And Paul here, obviously, is wanting to do God's will. He's wanting to serve him. And one of the reasons he's writing this letter is because he's trying to obey God. Later on, I did, we didn't read this far, but later on he says to the uh, King Agrippa, who he's talking to there, he says, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. And so he said, not only did I, was I converted, but it was a command, and I wasn't disobedient, I obeyed it. And I proclaimed the gospel to the Gentiles and to the Jews. And so um, Paul here is doing that. He's fulfilling that commission that he got at his conversion of sharing the gospel, of going out. He's here, he's talking to those in Crete. Um, he's sharing the gospel here. He is telling the mystery of what God has done. So that's all wrapped up in this idea of a, of a servant, belonging to another, doing the will of another. And we might just apply that to our life here before we go on to the next one. You know, what about us? You know, when we wake up, when we go throughout our day, is there a sense in which... It's like, God, what do you want me to do today? Not wake up in the morning, what do I feel like doing? What do I want to do? What's, what would make me happy today? But Lord, what do you want me to do? What would you have me to do? Because it may be that what God has for you today is great. It's, easy, it's comfortable. It's the thing you might want to do anyways, but there's days when it's not and when it's hard. And so we've got to be, to be a servant. We want to be asking God, what do you want me to do today? And every day. 
So a few more things here in general about what it means to be a servant. Belonging to another, doing the will of another, for the approval of another. Right? Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we make it our aim to please him. We make it our aim to please him. I might just read that whole section here because it's really good. If you want to turn with me, that's in 2 Corinthians 5. 5 9 is where we can start. 2 Corinthians 5 9. Whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. The main thing there is that we're, we're living for God. We're living for God. Um, we're not living for others. We're making it our aim to please God, not man, not those around us. There's many times when doing the will of another means not pleasing those around you. And so we're looking to God, uh, looking to him not only for what he would have us to do, but then for the <laughs> approval of what we do. And I've shared this illustration also before, but I'll, it's helpful to me, and I'll share it again. If Imagine a servant out in a field digging, okay? And somebody comes by, while they're digging the field and says, uh, wow, you're doing a terrible job. This is the worst field I've ever seen. I don't know what, I don't, never dug a field tilled. Is that, <laughs> I showed my ignorance. Or You're planting the seeds the worst I've ever seen. Well, what would your response be? Well, that'd be very discouraging. But what if the master came by just right after that or even while that person was saying that and said no? That's exactly how I told them to do it, and that's exactly how I want it done. Then the first thing is irrelevant, right? Because they're doing it for the master. And so that's our life, really, that we really, really want um, to please God. And we're looking to him. We're looking, God, what do you want me to do? Is this how you want me to live? What do you want me to say? And we, it's not that we can't be informed by others, um, because we need each other, and we'll see that later on in Titus. But ultimately, the approval we're looking for is God, not man. And this is the final just general comment here about being a servant is we're not only belong to another, we're not only doing the will of another for the approval of another, it's with the provision and protection of another. And so as we are God's servant, God is the one that's providing and protecting us as we go. It's he's the one that sent us, and he's the one that will be with us. And that's actually interesting because this section we read in, in Acts where Paul, God calls Paul to be a servant, he says right after that how he, hasn't, how he hasn't been disobedient, that he obeyed, and he's been doing it up to that point. He says, to this day I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets said and would, would come to pass, that the Christ may suffer, must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light, both to our people and to the Gentiles. So that first thing that he said, to this day I've had the help that comes from God. So you see actually a lot of these elements here just in Paul's own account of his conversion, which may very well have been this account that he's given 
uh, was definitely before some of these letters, or after some of these letters were written, probably not after Titus was written, but the, the idea that God called him to be a servant, he's doing God's will, he's obeying him, and then that he received the help that comes from God as he goes out on God's mission, um, the, that God's the one who sent him. And so we can lean in. This is very similar to what Andy had already shared about God being our refuge, that at, if we're doing what God has asked us to do, we're trying to please him, that we can lean in uh, on him for provision and protection. And there's an interesting verse here that I was reading in Daniel, and I was thinking, man, this is kind of shocking, kind of different. It, all, it seems like it always helps whenever you read, if you put it in modern terms, or like think about, okay, what would that look like in our church today? And I was thinking about this idea of being God's servant. What if I came up here today and the way I started my sermon was, I'm Andrew, you know, if you don't know me, I'm God's servant. That would kind of strike you as odd, right? Or, and then what if I finished it by saying, uh, and let's pray. And then I prayed, and during my prayer I said, God, would you please help? Um, The reason I want you to help is I'm your servant. And you know that, so would you please help me? I mean, not only introducing myself that way, but then appealing to God like, God, I know you're going to listen to my prayer because I'm your servant. Well, that's what Daniel does in Daniel. Trying to talk and turn here. Can't do too many things at once. Uh, In Daniel, I'll read this verse 9, 17. I was reading this and I was just kind of shocked by it. Now, therefore, this is, you can turn there if you want or I'll just read it to you, but... Daniel 9.17, Daniel's this long prayer uh, prayed by Daniel, but he says, Now therefore, O God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. He appeals to God based on his, him being God's servant. It's, it's an interesting prayer, and I was thinking, would I do that or do I ever do that? And really the answer is, no, I don't really pray like that. I don't pray appealing to being God's servant. And it kind of is surprising and just made me question, do I view myself as God's servant like I ought to? Um, is there a sense in which either that I'm not living for God day to day like I ought to be or in which I'm viewing myself wrongly? And so just something to think about to see that not only Paul, who has this vision from God, but Daniel, who's this political you know, right hand to a lot of these pretty evil kings, um, he's still viewing himself as God's servant. He's there as God's servant and appealing to that in his prayer. So these are just all general thoughts about what it means to be God's servant. But I want you to notice before we close two, two more things about this particular context here in Titus. What, is it, what does Paul mean here specifically in verses 1 to 4 when he's talking about being God's servant? I want you to know, notice something here. Let's read some of these verses back in Titus again. Starting in verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and the apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. So what, in what way here specifically is he viewing himself as a servant? A servant to build up the church and the people he knows in their faith and the knowledge of the truth? which accords with godliness, meaning um, basically obedience, right? Obedience to the truth. Faith in God, knowing the truth, 
and then obeying it. And so, you see this in other places in his letters, like in in Romans chapter 1, Paul says that he wants to come to them. Why? So that they could be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. And so that they're built, you know, he wants to be there. He's he's looking in his relationships as he's going to visit people and meet with people. He's thinking, I want to build up other people's faith. I want to encourage them and build them up. And so my question to you and to me is, do we view ourselves that way? One, do we view ourselves as God's servants at all? If you're a Christian, you are God's servant. And where he's put you, you're God's servant. And whether that's dad, saying how mom, mom that works, um, single, old, young, if you're trusting the Lord, you are his servant. And one of the things, not only for us, not only for Paul, but for us, is that that entails is building others up in their faith, that we can encourage others in their faith. Um, it's something to think about as we're talking to one another, as we're sharing prayer requests, as we're praying together at prayer meetings, even as we preach or um, discuss truth from the Bible, as do I have an opportunity today to be a servant of God in helping at someone else's faith? That could look a million different ways. I don't know what that looks like for you, where you're at. Whether whoever God has put you around, there's opportunities. And to see that as a big piece of your mission here on earth is to encourage one another's faith. Is there ways that we could be doing that, you know, in our words, in speaking truth to one another, in encouraging one another in obedience? Even with our kids, right? Maybe. I'm sure this is a common experience. Kids have bad dreams, and they're crying, scared. You know, what can we do? Well, that's an opportunity to encourage faith, right? We could, we could encourage. You know, when 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 I am there's a little scripture song that we have on CD. When I am afraid, I will trust in you. Is the is the song? It's an opportunity to say, hey, when we're afraid, who can we trust? You know, we can trust the Lord. Uh, there's lots of opportunities like that with kids, but also with one another, to encourage one another. There's the hard things. There's a lot of hard things that go on in everybody's life. And basically, every Sunday we meet, there's something really difficult going on in a few, usually, people's lives. And we can encourage one another. Trust the Lord. He's still there. He's still with you. It feels dark right now, but God is there. He wants to help you. Um, lean on Him. Grieve to him, pray to him, pour out your heart to him, even if that's difficult things, you know, things that make you sad, that make you cry, pour it out and lean on him. He's still there. He's with you. Um, We can do that. We can share our prayer requests um, and ask for help. Say, maybe there's something where you're struggling to trust God and you could just share that and ask for prayer. Maybe if there's a situation where you feel like this has been really hard, but you know what, God's really helped me to trust him. You can share that, and maybe that'll encourage someone else. You know, maybe something like your car breaks down, and you don't know where your next car's coming from. I don't know where our car broke down. We don't have the money right now, or we're not sure because of the, you know the shortage or whatever. But we're, 
praise the Lord, he's been helping us to trust him and we've felt peace and we've been able to sleep, we're not worrying about all the time, or something like that. That can encourage others' faith. Um, but we're pointing others continually to Christ. And that could be for Christians, but it could be for non-Christians. You know, you've heard it's, you know, sometimes people talk about someone being converted as being led to Christ. That's kind of encouraging, really. I mean, I can't think of a verse where it talks about conversion like that, but whoever thought of that or said that the first time, it obviously caught on because a lot of us say that and know what we mean when we say lead someone to Christ. But it's a good, if you think about what really means is conversion is simply pointing someone to Jesus. It's saying whatever conversion is, it means it means trusting Jesus and I'm just pointing you to him. I'm not doing anything for you. I'm not encouraging you to earn it or to merit it. I'm just pointing you to Jesus. And if that person really is pointed to Jesus, and they really do trust him, and they really do go to him, praise the Lord. Right? Can, how discouraging would it be if we called conversion um, leading someone to church? I'd be wrong, right? That's not what conversion is. Conversion isn't about going to church, about trusting a pastor or a priest or anything else. Conversion is going to Christ and trusting him. And so there's many ways, whether it's a, a Christian or a non-Christian, that we can try and build up one another's faith, um, lead people to trust Christ. And so that's what Paul has in view here, and we'll see that. You know, this is going to come out over and over throughout the letter. Um, and Lord willing, next week we're going to talk about what are the basics, you know, that he's... This phrase comes up a lot in the New Testament, specifically Paul, and especially in the pastoral epistles, the faith is, is, you know, is the way he says it. Basically, the basics of what it really is. What is the gospel? What are we trusting? So we're going to talk about that next week, um, specifically a bit more in detail. But secondly, this is the last thing um, for today, specifically about this context. What does Paul mean when he says he's a servant? Right here in verses 1 to 4. Let's pick up where we left off, where you talked about, um, according to the faith of God's elect, start in verse 2, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before ages began, and at the proper time has manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. So you see the connection here, the command. I'm reading, and I'm guessing that he's talking about his conversion there. And he's talking about that command to go and share the good news. Um, And so that's what I think he means there. But I want you to notice that word entrusted. Entrusted. What if I said, you know, I'm not going to do this, but what if I called somebody up? Hey, I want to do an illustration. Would you come up? I have something that I want to entrust to you. And then I pulled a piece of lint out of my pocket. It wouldn't make sense, right? Entrusting means there's something valuable there, right? And in Ephesians, he uses that similar language of entrust, but he talks about unsearchable riches of Christ that are in the gospel. Is it only Paul that's been entrusted? No. You may have not been called to be a missionary or to preach or anything like that, but you have been entrusted with something, with the gospel. If you know what Jesus did for you, you literally have unsearchable riches that you've been entrusted with and that you can share with others. That's an, 
That's an encouragement. Think about the idea that 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 really conveys about God's view towards you. God could have sent angels to proclaim the good news, right? And in many ways, in our minds, that would make more sense, right? It's like, wow, here's this person that has never sinned, and surely they could say it better than me. But yet God sends sinners to tell other sinners, which is encouraging in another way, and it does make sense if you start to think about it. Who needs, what do sinners need to hear? That there's a God who loves them, will forgive them, and that they can trust and be saved. And God sent us, sinful people, to do that. He's entrusted us with that. And so you're, not only are you God's servant, if you're trusting him as your Lord, you've been entrusted with something extremely valuable. Well, the Bible calls it unsearchable riches in the gospel, in Christ, found in Christ. And God's entrusting that to you, every one of you. That's encouraging. But also, it's a responsibility too. Um, there's opportunities that you have. I remember when we were in the jail talking, sharing the gospel with people, and there's one guy on there who's we were talking to, and he's he's never going to get out, and he knows that. And we were talking about the gospel, and one of the things we were discussing is basically that how valuable it is this this idea of what we've been entrusted with the gospel that God loves us, that He will forgive us, that Christ died for our sins. Um, and all that that entails, that he rose again. We're going to cover more of that next week. But it's it's something pretty amazing. If you really believe that, um, what it means is, and we were talking to this guy in jail who's never going to get out, I said, we were talking about it, I was like, you can leave your kids with something better than Bill Gates can leave his kids, right? Way better. Actually, a million times better. Right? He may leave his kids a billion or two billion or whatever, but you can leave them unsearchable riches in Christ if you share the gospel with them. That's pretty amazing, really. It's, it's pretty remarkable. And we could say the same for all of us, right? Not just the guy in jail, um, but all of us. We have something extremely valuable, not only for our kids, but for those we meet. That forgiveness, uh, a yoke that's light. Remember Jesus when he calls, my burden is easy, my yoke is light. There's people, if you walk around Kirksville and you talk to people in Kirksville, you see what's going on. There's people with heavy yokes. And it'd be really, they really need to hear about Jesus, right? And his, his yoke, his light yoke, that they can be forgiven, freed, saved. Um, their guilt can be washed away. They can become a new person. That's amazing truth um, that we all all have opportunities and it may be it's not every day maybe it's not every week um, but we have opportunities and we can ask the Lord help Lord would you help me to share where you want me to so kind of just to summarize basically circle back around summarize everything we've talked about just to say this, if we're trusting the Lord, just like Paul, we're God's servant. That means a lot of things. Um, maybe what you needed to hear was that you really do belong to God. You're not your own. Maybe maybe it was that 
you're meant to do the will of another, to do God's will. Maybe you've lost sight of that, that it's so easy to get into a routine and just be going on what I feel like doing today or, or not even ask the Lord, what do you want me to do today? Just do what you always do. Maybe it's the idea that a servant is for the approval of God, for the approval of another. Maybe you slipped into living for the approval of those around you. I need a reminder on that. Or just an encouragement. Or provision and protection coming from God towards his servants. Maybe you need to hear that. Both when things are good and hard to know that God's in control, that anything that comes our way, it's not unknown to God, um, that he's there. Specifically, that we're here to encourage others' faith, and we've been entrusted with the gospel. Wherever we are, wherever you are, that these things are not just true about Paul, but true about you. There's a poem that uh, I, I like. I'm going to read you part of it. It's not specifically Christian, but uh, or uh, it's not talking about this exact idea of the gospel, but I'm going to pull it up here and read it. I like this idea that kind of gets across this idea of wherever we are, we're God's servant. And uh, this, the uh, poem is called True Nobility. It says, who, who does his task from day to day and meets whatever comes his way, believing God has willed it so, has found real greatness here below. Who guards his post no matter where, believing God must need him there, although but lowly toil it be, has risen to nobility. And the that's the title of the poem, True Nobility. But basically the idea, and I don't know this guy's faith at all where he was at, um, but I liked that poem. The idea that wherever you are, God put you there. Whatever's coming your way, God has allowed that and knows. That whatever he's asking you to do, whether it's uh, whatever post it is, whether it's something that seems important in the world's eyes or not, because God has put you there, that that's real nobility when we really believe those things. And I, I we know that to be true through Christ. For us, we want to be the servants that will do what God asks us to do, whether everybody sees or nobody sees, right? It's not a really a useful servant. Imagine if you hired a guy to, you know, to, to work on your house, okay? But you couldn't trust him unless the task was great. So you hired him and you wanted him to patch something in your wall and you came back and he's got a turret halfway constructed, you know, on the front of your house. It's like, I just hired you to patch this wall. Well, but I thought it'd be more wonderful and awesome if your house had a turret. <laughs> it's like, okay, that's not the guy you want, right? <laughs> Working on your house. But we can kind of be like that towards God, can't we? I mean, it's like, God, if you had asked me to do something bigger and better, like, I would have been happy to do that, but you asked me to do this little thing. And so I'm not really that excited about it. We don't want to be like that. We want to trust the Lord 
in it, wherever he's put us, whether that's low in the world's eyes or high, whether someone sees or someone doesn't see, wherever we are, we're God's servant. We're leaning on him. We're trying to encourage others' faith, whether that's somebody important or somebody that the world doesn't view as important. Wherever we are, we're wanting to live as servants that are entrusted with unsearchable riches, the gospel, and share that where we can, where God wants us to, leaning on him. So let's pray together. Father, thank you just that you love us and that there's grace where we fail and we just confess we all fall short um, every day. And we need you to wash us by your blood. Um, We want to be your servant. And we're thankful that it's not based on our works, but it's based on you, Christ, um, your perfect life. Thank you for being the perfect servant and perfect example for us. We want to be more like you day to day. Forgive us where we fail. And I do pray this week and this month or this year you would put people in our path that you want us to share um, what you've done for us and forgiveness and freedom found in you. So we're asking for help, for wisdom to know when that is and courage um, when it comes and love for people every day um, regardless. So we're looking to you. Ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.